Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Warriors. Thank you so much for joining me for this part two slash bonus episode that is tied closely together with my episode on the Camp Danger double murders of Captain Esposito and Lieutenant Lou Allen. Now, you've all heard me tell the story that was informed mostly by the book Front Toward Enemy, written by Barbara Allen, Lou Allen's widow. And today, she has taken the time to chat with us to answer some of our burning questions to tell us what inspired her to tell her story of grief in an open book to the world. She further tells us her thoughts on what she believes caused an acquittal on a pretty good circumstantial case. She gets nitty gritty. She tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly, and she doesn't sugarcoat her words. So if you're ready, let's dig in with Barb Allen. Barbara Allen is a boss lady. (laughs) She's a public speaker, an author, a mom, and she's the head writer, commentator, and co-founder of American Snippets. She is Lieutenant Lewis Allen's widow. And after he was murdered, she had to figure out life. She had to figure out how to live, how to be a woman, and how to be a mom to four boys. It was during those years of grief, loss, and discovery that she was able to step into her own greatness to inspire, encourage, and mentor herself and her kids. And now she inspires others. She has not shied away from calling it how it is. She's an award-winning author and her third book is coming out in June. I'm super excited. She has been featured on the Today Show, Fox News, and Army Times. And right now, I have the pleasure of introducing her onto the Military Murder Podcast. Hey, Barb. (laughs) Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. So, So tell me, how is everything going with you right now? Um, it's going, we're, we're, um, (laughs) we just have so much to pull together and so much going on at the same time. Like, you know, you spend all these years putting these dots on the map Mm -hmm. and now we either connect them or, or you miss that cycle and you have to start all over again. So, so that's where we're at now. We're at the connecting the dots critical phase for our live events, for some personal stuff we have going on, for our community, for my book coming out, for all of this. And so we're going hard for the next six, seven months, and they're going to (laughs) be defining months for us. That's awesome. It looks like you're working on a lot of different things, and I definitely want to hear about all of them. My listeners actually got to hear uh, a full episode that I did based off your book, Front Toward Enemy. So that's kind of like your baby, I would say. I think, I don't know, maybe I'm making that up. <laughs> um, but I wanna, I wanna talk through this. When we talked a few months ago, you, you mentioned how you came about the book, how it was originally supposed to be one thing and then because of the result of trial, it ended up being something else. So I had the chance to read the book twice, cover to cover. I highlighted it and I just showed it to you. It looks like a textbook because I have highlighted it so much and there's just so much good content in there. So tell my listeners about your writing process for Front Toward Enemy and what you originally were hoping to accomplish when you wrote the book and then basically what it ended up being. 
Yeah. So I didn't start with the intent to write a book at all. I was writing some newspaper columns, updating. There was a lot of this. When this happened, this was national news and I didn't know anything about this. And I was getting all these calls from reporters. And I said to my CAO one day, I'm like, why do I have to answer like 12 different phone calls all the time? Can't I just answer them all at once? Just get everybody here all at once. And let me just answer all the questions and be done. He's like, uh, you want to hold a press conference? I had no idea. I had no <laughs> right. idea that's what I was doing, but that's what I, that's what I did. And that's what I wound up doing. And that was much the same way as this book. I didn't intend to write a book. I started off to write a journal because there was so much happening in my brain and my heart and my mind. And I knew that it felt like there was sort of like a like a veil between me and my boys, like, like I could see them and I could feel them. And, but I knew I wasn't doing what I needed to do to reach them all the way as much as I wanted. I felt like there was a disconnect because I was in so much pain. And while part of me was conscious of that, the other part felt helpless to push through that fog, that veil. So I just started to write a journal. I started to journal it all because I figured if I felt that way, even though they were so little, they probably felt that way too. And I didn't want them to mature and look back on their childhood and have all these questions that I had lost memory of. I couldn't speak to specific instances and I wanted them to have this ability to look it up and pick this up and read it and say, oh, that's why mom was so crazy. Or, you know, right. that's, you know, maybe if they were harboring some resentment towards me for letting them down, maybe they'd read that and understand a little better and forgive me. Like, that's what was going through my head at the time when I started the journal. And then as the case evolved and I realized I saw these things about it that were learning points to me, like I'd go into a meeting with some lieutenant general colonel. I'm not a military person, you know, I don't, I, not that I don't respect the rank, but they don't hold the fear for me. Like I'm not beholden to them. I'm not underneath them. I was going to them and I had no idea I'm meeting people with like badges and medals and stars and pins and everybody around me is kissing this person's ass. And I'm like, and you are, you know, like I I just didn't know like who they were. And so I go into these meetings and somebody would say to me, one of these high up officers or officials would say things to me like, well, you know, he probably should, Martinez probably should never been allowed in the military anyway. You're like, it's, you know, we don't, we don't let people like him in or something like that. And I came across the table at one. I'm like, maybe instead of trying to like spin things and shut us up, maybe you could focus more on why you let people like him in the military. Look at all these things he did. Look at his history. Mm -hmm. before he was allowed in the National Guard. Maybe you guys should clean up the National Guard so people like my husband aren't killed and you don't have to deal with people like me. Like I would say this to them and everybody in the room was like, what? And so (laughs) that's when I realized that if I could figure this out, if, if I could see all these flaws in Martinez, the waivers, all these things that they granted him access into the United States military in spite of this history, why, you know, why, why would you do that? And I just thought that more people should be aware because I don't think my husband knew that he would be serving alongside somebody with the character of that person. I think he assumed, and, and I never say that my husband was flawless or sane or some like God on a pedestal, but he was a good, decent human being. And he expected the piece people around him mm-hmm. to be the same. And so that was my, one of my first 
realizations that I'm not the only one that just doesn't understand. Like, you know, why, why isn't this out there? Why are you so callously laughing about this? You know, it's not okay. So that, you know, so there were things like that as the case evolved and I saw more things happen. I heard all the threats that Martina, hundreds of threats, hundreds of threats against my husband and captain Esposito, all these things that were learning. If just one of those things had been paid attention to, this wouldn't have happened. And then I saw it happen in the past. I started comparing it to other cases. Like, oh my gosh, all these warning signs appeared in all these cases. Right. Why isn't anybody doing this? So that then it evolved into writing the book to teach about that. And then this case went to hell. And mm-hmm. and then it was then it was about getting the truth out because the truth wasn't coming out in trial or even in the news. Right, right. So and so I, I remember you had mentioned and I could get I could be I could have this wrong. So you said you originally um, you had book companies that were eager, like, oh, this is going to be a great book. But then once the result came out, they kind of turned their backs on you. Tell me a little bit about that and what that was like. So if anybody's written a book or put a book out there, it's times have changed. Even this was, um, I think this was somewhere around 2010 that I published that first book and independent publishing was still looked upon like vanity publishing. Like you were Mm -hmm. just too much of a loser to get an agent. So you had to publish it yourself. And that's how it was looked at. Now it's like, cool. Now a lot of people now publishing has been so politicized and realize that now everybody's self-publishing or going their own way and or and it's seen as more acceptable and that's even competitive to get into those companies they won't even publish. but at the time when i was publishing front toward enemy that was unheard of and only the losers self-published or paid somebody to publish their book so i didn't know anything about how to publish a book i i got the book in the bookstore about how to get your book written and published and you know the query letters and <laughs> sending this out and getting all the rejections i was like I don't know who to go to. I'm just going to submit to the people who wrote this book on how to get published. And within a couple of weeks, they wrote back, said, yes, we want to represent you. I said, perfect. And they were really excited. And I had, I had agents, I had really high powered agents, but when the acquittal happened, they were like, well, the story doesn't really have the neat tied up in a bow package that people like. So that's crazy. We're going to have to pass on it at this time. And then I was so deeply invested. And I was so far down the line, I didn't want to start all over and go through a two or three year process to get a book published. So I, I uh, self published it, I paid to publish that book. Oh, I didn't know this was self. Oh, that's awesome. It's like, I mean, that, yeah. I think it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, I, had to awesome. pay. I lost a lot of money on that book. Let's yeah, just put it that way. I paid a premium yeah. to publish that book. Yeah, well, I'm glad it's yeah. out there. Because I think uh, I, I'm glad I, I'm excited. Hopefully a lot of my listeners will pick that book up because it is, I mean, it's really a page turner. I, once you know that you result, but still when you're reading it, you're just like, you're even more in shock. I feel like as you're reading it, right? Cause I feel like as you're reading it, you expect something and then it, something else happens and you're just like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> okay. So in your book, Front Toward Enemy, you wrote something and it's on page 35. I have a little note here, but Um, It's a statement that stuck with me. And I know that it's been almost 16 years ago that that um, Lou died. Um, But you wrote, quote, this cannot be happening. Not my Lou. He's the strong one. He taught me what love is. He's my world. What do I do now? How can I possibly live without him? End quote. So clearly now, almost 16 years later, you're in a different headspace, right? Talk to me about the healing process. I know everyone's grief looks differently. What did the healing process look like for you? It looked like like a 
foal that's just about to born keeps uh, just being born and like falls on his face, you know, over and over <laughs> and over until it until it can walk again. I just yes. fell over and over and over and over again. I fell. And even now, and it's interesting that you just read that to me and it just slams something else to him. Because even now, as you're reading that, this is one of the points I'll make. I go right back to that place and I get very emotional and the pain yeah. wells up and I feel it again. And that's the point that I learned is really, really important because for so long, I felt like, like I failed at grief. I was like, I just, I just figured out how to be a wife. I was still figuring out how to be a mom. I'm still figuring that out, how to be a mom. And now I had to figure out how to be a widow, you know? And, and I felt like I sucked at being a widow in some ways. I still suck at being a widow, but uh, you know, it was like, because I got to this point, I'm like, I went through all these stages. I did this. I fell on my face. I raged. I felt like it was just not pretty. And I don't know if in my case, I would have been different had it been a quote, normal death. And I had it gone through the trial process and understand the futility of his death, the meaningless of it. And then watching the acquittal, it was like just one wound being ripped open after another, after another, after another. So I was in a constant cycle of pain and it felt like anytime I made some progress, I was pushed back or something was ripped right open and I was re-injured and re-wounded and I just kept making a mess and it just became all overbearing on top of I'm raising my kids and I'm in the media and I'm going to Kuwait, I'm going to North Carolina. I got all this stuff going on and it was just too much for me. It was my resilience skills were way outmatched by my pain and my, my situation. Mm-hmm. So I had to, it wasn't for like 10 years that I finally took the time to, to like go hard and go deep and look at it. But that's the point because part of my issue was I felt like I was just, I wasn't doing it right. Like everybody else was so much better at this than me. They, they were better at putting their lives back together. They were better mm-hmm. at grieving. They were better at all of this, but that's part of it. You know, nobody talks about that in the cycles of grief. They talk about the five or the seven stages that end with acceptance. And when you get to the point where you're like, okay, I get it. Like, I accept this. I fi- I'm grateful for the love we had. You know, I, I'm ready to move forward. You feel like, okay, that should be it. I should be done feeling any of that. And you don't realize it keeps coming back. And then you also hold on to some guilt for things. So I added, that's why I added the last two phases in my book. I, I talk about that. I'm like, you really need to talk on two more steps and that's forgiveness and then repeat. Um, you need to forgive yourself for the mistakes you feel that you made. Right. Before that person you love died. And after that person you love died, you need to find a way to forgive yourself and let go of that guilt. And then you need to understand you're just going to go through this all over again, which brings me back to you reading that to me a moment ago. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't aware that that was normal to feel that pain resurface when you're reading that to me, I would feel like, what the hell is wrong with me? But why aren't I quote over this? You know, so <clears throat> just lessons learned, but in a very painful way, it didn't, didn't look good when I was going through it. <laughs> Yeah. And I could, see, I could see it in your face when I read the crow. I was like, oh no, I was like, I don't want her to cry. I don't want her to yeah, do I mean, that's, but that's the point, right? right? Is that you can still be happy. You can find beauty. You can find joy. You can be moving forward. You can be pushed mm-hmm. forward. You can't ignore the fact that pain is pain and grief is grief. And you're never going to stop missing. You know, I have a, a dog that died years ago that I love deeply. When I think about her, I tear up if people say, you know, so right. it's just part of it. It's part of love is grief and the love never dies. Neither does the grief. You just have to learn to, to acknowledge that. Right. Right. And so we're going to talk about your book because this, the, the stages of grief, you are not discussed in your, in front toward enemy is discussing your new book, but we're going to get to that one. So um, you mentioned that you, in your book, in your front toward enemy book, you mentioned something that kind of caught me 
by surprise. You mentioned that you didn't realize that grief was such an emotional, such a physical emotion, like could just physically control your life. So many of my listeners have actually reached out to me to tell me how they have endured their own tragedy, be it a death in the family, the senseless murder of a family member. And they find some form of solace in my storytelling. Maybe it's the fact that they're not alone in feeling these emotions. Tell me more about that. First, the physical emotion, and then how sometimes hearing other people's stories help you overcome your own grief. It, uh, it, it is an intensely physical pain. And I didn't understand that. I had no idea. You know, I'd had my heart broken before and all this, but that's nothing. And I was in such giant volumes of physical pain. It just, it felt like every nerve ending was on fire. Literally, if somebody touched me, I would jump. Um, My body rejected sleep. I was desperate for Mm -hmm. sleep and my body physically was in so much pain. It would not shut down and sleep. That's where I started popping pills and chasing them with gin and tonics, like desperate Mm -hmm. to sleep. But I couldn't for, for weeks, maybe 10, 15 minutes and I would be awake again. And just pain, just constant pain. My head hurt. I was dizzy. I was burning. I was freezing. I was everything. I was shaking. I was nauseated. It was, I've been through, you know, broken bones, kidney stones. I'd had liver failure from pancreatitis. My insides were digesting myself right from inside out. That was painful. Right. This made all of that look painful, just I don't know. I've heard other people, I've shared that with other people and they say, yeah, that it's the same thing. You're not prepared for the physical pain when you're invested, you're grieving. Think about that when you're in love, think about when you're in love and how everything is better. Everything is fluttery and everything is beautiful. And, you know, you feel light and you feel excited and you're sweating with joy and you're glowing. (laughs) Grief reverses all that. Right. And amplifies it. So everything, all the power of love is turned against you mm-hmm. and used as a weapon against you. And whew, if you're not ready for that, oof, you're, you're in for a tough time. Yeah. It's something that's shocking. And you describe that very well in your book about, you talk about like your knees buckle at certain points and you're just like literally on the floor and people have to like, you know, peel you off the ground and you talk about those emotions. Yeah. And I think that's what's so that's what's so raw about your book. I I really, I really love that about it. Cause I've never quite read a book like yours. You know what I mean? Never read a book that was written kind of firsthand um, about the emotions that a loved one feels. You always read true crime books and they're usually written by um, true crime. Other people. Yeah. Yeah. Or a journalist who was there, but yeah. they don't know. They're not there in the middle of the night when you're, <laughs> like you said, unable to fall asleep and you have to do whatever you can. So I appreciate that. You talk about in your book, and then I, I follow you on Instagram, and you t- and I don't know if I'm saying this right, this word right, but equine rescue. Yeah, equine rescue. Yeah, e- yeah. Tell me more about that and how you found that and how it helped you process. I've always loved horses. I, a lot of little girls love horses, and so I managed to find my way to work with horses when I was little, and kept that, and went to college for equestrian science. But one of my friends. I met a long, she's one of my oldest friends. Uh, she runs an equine rescue, mm-hmm. and so 
while I was volunteering for a therapeutic horseback riding on the sides, I, I also volunteered for my friends at Wine Rescue when I was younger and before kids and before, you know, when I, when I still had time to do that. And I loved it, loved it, loved it. But then uh, it was maybe it was like a year or so after my husband was killed. And I said to her, I'm like, you know what, Linda, this is it. Like I finally, I have some money in an account. I can take care of a horse. Finally, I need something for me. I'm like, I would finally love to get that big black horse that I've always dreamed about. And she's like, shut the hell up. I'm like, why? She's like, I literally just got off the phone with somebody who has this big percher on that they can't keep. I'm like, come to mama, you know? Oh wow! <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, you know, in comes my horse, Lenny. And I just, uh, I don't, I've, whoever's listening, if you have pets, some people like horses, some people don't, but whatever that outlet is for you, the animals are for me and nature is for me and horses always have been for me and horses will reflect energy that they feel. So when you come, it doesn't matter how well your horse knows to you. If you come at them from a place of pain and anger and rage, that's like, it's like punching them with it, right? They feel it. They react to that energy. And so you can come at a horse all tense which has nothing to do with the horse. You're not tense or angry at the horse, but you're carrying that energy with you. That horse will feel it and it will freak the horse out and it will back away from you. So horses are a really good indicator. They're a really good gauge of where you're at oh, wow. emotionally and mm -hmm. spiritually and mentally. If you're not balanced and ready, that horse is going to react. And sometimes when you're in pain, if you're just sad and soft and down that horse will feel that too and just like other other animals other dogs some dogs are more empathetic than others some cats are some horses are too and the horse will like really make it a point to kind of be softer or gentler with you so for me they're just great i just love them and so i have the two horses today and that's yeah, awesome I, I spend as much time with them as i can that's awesome Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. 
Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. At the outset of everything, you mentioned that you made contact with a woman, a widow named Terry Seifert. Terry Seifert, yeah. Seifert. So she was one of the widows of the double murder that occurred at the hands of Asan Akbar about two years or maybe a year uh, before, no, two years before your husband yeah. was murdered. How did, so you, you, you had wanted to speak to her and someone put you guys in contact. How did talking to her help you in the process? It was a game changer, game changer. And this is what one of the things that my experience has taught me is anybody going through pain, especially in this situation, but you know, the military murder or assault or whatever, it's scary. It's overwhelming. It's all this. There is always somebody who has been through some version of what you're going through now. Mm-hmm. Always. I don't care what it is. If you need to break down what you're going through now, into 30 different steps and find 30 different mentors. And that's what you do. But right. there was, in my case, there was somebody who had very literally walked the same path that I was walking. And ironically, my husband and I had followed her case before we'd read it together. And my husband was furious about what happened and had his ideas. And he saw that her husband's killer was convicted and knew that was the right thing. And she had sat in the very same courtroom that I was going to sit in, worked with one of the very same prosecutors. She had had the resolution that I so desperately wanted. And she was still there because I was convinced. I was like, no fucking way. I, too late to ask if I can curse, but I, no, curse, that's fine. You know? I, was, I was like, do it. I was like, no fucking way. Can I get through this? Like, this mm-hmm. is, this is a joke. If the, Nobody can be expected to get through this. But there she was. There was Terry. She was proof that you can get through this. And I was fascinated and I was in awe and I was in disbelief and I was desperate to believe that I could, too. So I was put in touch with her and she very, very graciously. This was still very raw for her. Mm -hmm. This was only three months after her trial had concluded and she was still going through. She has a very young boy. She was still in pain. She was still hurting, trying to process this all. But she still took the time to really walk through, here's what's going to happen. No, when they say this, they mean that. When you go in the courtroom, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it's going to smell like. This is what, you know, all these things. So she took wow. some of the uncertainty away from me. And that is such a tremendous gift to offer somebody. Mm-hmm. It's just enormous. So that was another lesson that she taught me is no matter how much pain you're in, there is still somebody who needs you, who can benefit from the wisdom that you're achieving in that moment, even if you don't realize it. And she was a, just a colossal game changer for me. That's awesome that you had a mentor in just what you said, walking into a courtroom, because a lot of people don't think about this, but that's something that victims and victims, family members have to go through, right? It's like the trauma of walking into a courtroom. Most of us are just like, oh, it's just a courtroom. But it's like, no, it's so much more than that, right? It's where a lot of family members for the first time, they learn about what actually happened to their loved ones. And that's so traumatizing or re-traumatizing all over again. Yeah. And you're sitting 10 feet away from the piece of shit who murdered the person you love so dearly. Right. And laughed at him suffering, you know, and you have to learn how to sit in the same. That's something that you just really can't explain or describe unless you've actually been there doing it. Right. Right. You talk about so and not only do you talk about Terry, but you talk about meeting other wives through the gold star wives. Is that something that you used a lot also? 
And then you talk about, and I, I, you kind of in the book talk about both of this together, but you talk about using dark humor. Is that something that goes on a lot in the Golden, in the Gold Star Wives Club? Because I, I can imagine it does, right? Because you need dark humor to get through such a dark time in your life. Yeah. And so humor is different for everybody. Grief and coping is different for everybody. And so just like in any community, in the widow community, there are different personalities and you tend to, you know, you try to get along with everybody, but you surround yourself with the people that you most align with and how your approach uh, is going to be. So some people find my humor offensive. My friend and I, we got sort of politely asked to leave a chat board back in the day because we rewrote Christmas carols to be widow Christmas carols. And they were pretty dark, (laughs) but we had that because the first time I went Christmas shopping. So my husband was killed in June and my friend's husband was killed about the same time. And now it's Christmas and you have these little kids. And I've been to Kuwait for a court martial. I mean, I was this emotional shipwreck and I went to Christmas shop and the carols start playing. I literally started sobbing right in the middle of the store, fled Mm -hmm. the building, crashed into a car, went (gasps) home. I mean, it was about as worse as it could possibly be. And I was like, my God, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to navigate Christmas shopping when I can't, the, the, carols and noise were so painful for me. Yeah. I just, again, and there were other women who were like, I got this, I'm going to go do it. And, and they just went about it. I did not yet possess that strength. I just didn't have it. It, it was like trying to do a thousand sit-ups when you have no core strength, right? You need to build that core strength before you can do these things. I had no core strength. I, I just didn't. And so how was I going to do that until I developed that core strength? My friend and I rewrote the Christmas carols, super dark, uh, but we thought they were hilarious. And we shared them on the chat board. And some other widows were like, ah, it's amazing. Thank you. And others were like, oh my gosh, blasphemy, you know, oh, this is so offensive. And we upset so many people and that, you know, we learned really fast who our people were in the widow community. And so, you know, it's not for everybody, but I've met a lot of people along the way, a lot of veterans in particular, they'll like say something to me and I'm like, you you think that's bad. You need to hang out with with my widow friends, you know? So, but that's just who we are. Humor, humor is one of the most underutilized tools against pain Mm -hmm. and trauma and tragedy that there is. You Mm -hmm. just don't think about it, but even if it's not funny and you find some reason to laugh at it, that's teaching your body to laugh. That's taking the power away from pain and using it. That's a, that's a win. That's a victory. So it's reprogramming, rewiring your brain in an important way. And however you need to do it, that's how we do it. So yeah, we make a lot of jokes and that's passed on to my kids a little, and they'll say things. I'm like, oh, you can't say that in school, you know, but they, but they would. And so, <laughs> So that's just, uh, but it's how it was one of our methods. It's not for everybody, but it it was for us. Wow. So, so that's the gold star wives. Now I have a lot of listeners who are survivors in other ways, right? Either parents or siblings. Right. You actually mention, um, I think it's towards the end of your book, a military survivors of homicide group. Is that still a thing or where could my listeners potentially who, who are interested in joining that, where can they find that? Yeah, that is run by Scylla McCain. She is an author. She oh, wrote yeah. a story. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, and she, why can't I remember the name? I've been out of touch with her for a little while. I think she had to step back a little bit from it because it became so overwhelming from her. Families were sort of pouring their pain on expecting her to, but I can look it up and I can get it to you because I think, um, I think, you know, the, the site is still out there, military bereavement family. There's a bereavement bill of rights for families and all the stuff that's going on. So it is important to know and to connect with, but to my knowledge, that's the only group there is It's the only resource out there, which is a shame. Really? You see sexual assaults are becoming first. Nobody talked about them. And I spent a few years as a veteran services officer as well. And Mm -hmm. I counseled hundreds of veterans and their families and several dozens of sexual assault victims as well from the military. And nobody was talking about it. It Mm -hmm. was like there was a stigma attached to it. And so now people are, but still military murders are are stigmatized and survivors of military members who've been murdered. We have somewhat of a stigma as well. So it's unfortunate. There's no real true support network for our families, no formal one, no official one, but Okay. And that's why I hadn't seen one. And then when I meant, I heard you mention it in the book, I was like, wait a minute, what? I've never heard of this. So I wanted to make sure that I knew, I at least knew that resource and could share it with my military families for justice. That's what the site is military families for justice. Uh, So I would recommend you hop on there. I get the resources that are available. Maybe, maybe it's still active and people can connect with that. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned um, throughout your book, uh, you talk about the media. You write that you had to fight hard to keep your husband's case in the media's eyes. A few questions. What did you mean by that? And why was it so important for the media to be involved? And you see it now, right? You see it now. What gets attention gets attention and gets noticed and gets it out there. And I saw our, I saw things happening in our case behind the scenes. I learned things about the investigators. I learned things about witnesses. I saw things the trial judge was doing. I saw how the panel was set up and I started, uh, this fear was hitting me that we were going to lose, that this case was going to be thrown, that that he was going to walk. And I saw things that would outrage people, but nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, if the media isn't covering this, if nobody knows about it, it's going to be so much easier for them to dismiss it and and run amok with justice and i was desperate for i was like you know what if we could get celebrities to tweet or actually social media wasn't really a thing then so it was harder had if it happened today it'd be different right but i knew and as a portion as it was we we didn't it wasn't like we were craving i didn't want to be like it you know it wasn't about getting my name out there i wanted somebody who was somebody to start speaking about this case. Cause me speaking about the case, nobody cared. Who was I? I was just, no. And these were just national guard soldiers, you know, they weren't. So it was just national guard. It was just two housewives or moms and we weren't housewives. We worked, but you know, we were nobodies and the media didn't really care. And the military was making it very clear that what was going to happen was going to happen. And we were to sit down and shut up and just do as we were told. And, there was only so much wiggle room they were going to allow to us. And we saw things happening in this case that were not okay. Mm-hmm. And I was just desperate to get eyes on it. I was like, look what they're doing and nobody's watching. I felt like if we could get people to watch and care, get the president to watch 
and care, get people in power to watch and care, or at the very least, get some celebrities to care because people care about what celebrities think, right. Right, as you see evidence today. Right. And so that's why I thought, I'm like, I just need people to care. People mm-hmm. need to care. Like, is anybody watching? Like, look what's happening. And I was just desperate. I wanted backup. I wanted support. And I didn't feel like we had it. And we were right. Media interest started to drop because it was a three and a half year process. And the military, we had a lot of calls, 60 minutes, 48 hours, all those shows. But the military said, no, we're not giving you access to the courtroom. And the minute the military denied access to cameras in the courtroom, mm-hmm. The meeting moved on because why should they work for it? Right. Why should they spend so much time covering a case that they were going to have to put some extra work in for when they had so many other people handing them videos of the case and handing them stuff? It wasn't about helping us. It wasn't about caring about the story. It's about the ratings and what's easier, what's more economical. And our case just didn't check any of those boxes. So they moved on for the most part. We only had a handful of media people who stuck with it, but it wasn't enough. Right. So, so you said something, I, I, I wasn't sure. I was like, well, are we going to get into this or are we not? And you talk about, you saw things. <laughs> You're like, I saw things that were crazy. Do you want to share with my list? I mean, they could pick up the book as well, but do you want to share what, what those things were that you saw that you were like, just, this isn't right. Yeah. I mean, there were things I didn't put in the book because I didn't want to detract from the murder and yeah. from the case. Uh, and there were things that I didn't talk about for a while for the same reason. Now, you know, I won't name names. Somebody really wants to take the time. They can piece it together and figure out the name. But for instance, when I was in Fort Bragg, just before the trial was going to start, we had been to a hearing and one of the special agents that had interviewed Martinez, he was like a key witness And he was going to come. I knew that we weren't being told that, you know, we'd get this half of the story, then that half the story. And I knew things weren't adding up, but I wanted the truth. And so I had this CID agent who was going to come to my apartment that night and really talk to me in private. And I was like, this is it. This Mm -hmm. is the night. I am going to learn the truth. I am going to find out what's happening because, you know, you can tell when you're being lied to a lot. And I knew we we were being told all the truth. And so this guy comes in. And this person who played a key role in the trial, he's not there to tell me to answer my questions. He's there to like unload on me and tell me how strong I am and talk about his personal problems and break down crying, ask me if I had any weed because he could really, this is the guy that's going to be testifying that week. (laughs) And he's there and and I'm like, what the actual fuck is happening right here, right? You know, the special agent in charge was caught in an extramarital affair with a former prosecutor. And that the defense was holding that above his head because, you know, that's not allowed in the military. So all these things that were happening and I was like, all these people we are counting on mm-hmm. are really sort of pieces of garbage in terms yeah. of integrity and and doing this. And I mean, they're human beings. You people discount that we discount the frailties of you're still human beings. And that comes with the good side and the bad side. And I was seeing so many breakdowns of character in the people that we were relying on. And then the judge sat a husband and wife on the jury together. That's unheard of. That is unheard of. Mm -hmm. Anybody I said that to, they'd be like, no, he didn't. I'm like, actually he did. 
Mm-hmm. There you go. And they were both anti-death penalty. They made that extremely clear. There was a lot of confusion about the judge refused to allow clarification for the prosecution to explain to the panel that a guilty verdict did not equate to a death penalty. He refused, refused. Now, in the Akbar case, he had allowed the prosecution, the same judge mm-hmm. had allowed the prosecution to explain to the jury the difference between a, a the conviction, conviction and, a and a sentence. But in our case, he did not. So there were a lot of the jury members who were under the and the defense pounced on that and never came out and said it, but really sort of manipulated the words and put the emotion in there where they believed that if they convicted, he was going to be sentenced to death. And that went against their beliefs. One thing after another, after another, one layer after another, or any one thing may not be enough. But when you're allowed to get away with peppering and peppering and peppering and peppering, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. So we had talked before about uh, if you could pick like three or four things that you think really maybe put the reasonable doubt in the jury members' heads. What, What do you think those were? I mean, it's one of those cases, too. And at the time, there was a lot of talk about the CSI effect. The CSI was a really big show at the time. Um, and people would go watch it and they would. Oh, well, you know, you need fingerprints. You need DNA. You need this. And everything's all wrapped up. But this was a circumstantial case. Mm-hmm. And there was also a lot of evidence that wasn't allowed to be placed mm-hmm. into evidence mm-hmm. because the judge ruled against it. And there were a lot of the things that the fence would say that were factually incorrect. And the prosecution would object And the jury would be excused and (laughs) they would argue it about it with outside the presence of the jury, which, again, doesn't really happen in CSI. Everything's happened or or these, you know, TV shows is all like in front of the jury. But no, the jury is excused and they argue it. And the judge is like, "Okay, well, prosecution, you're right. That's wrong. Defense, you shouldn't say that. And prosecution would say, "Okay, but now we can correct that and and tell the jury that was wrong. No, you can't. So (laughs) the defense wasn't all. You know, the defense may not have been granted a permission to proceed down that path, but they the damage it. had been done mm-hmm. and it was they were never the jury was never told to disregard it. And that happened several times over the course of just enough. The defense would get a dig in. The jury would be excused. Judge would say, 
you know, okay, don't do that anymore, but then refuse. And so, I mean, there were so many things and pieces of evidence that didn't get in and agents that were tripped, like the one agent that was just mortified on Stan, he was terrified on Stan and he was a key witness and he knew defense was holding that extramarital affair over him. Um, and so he didn't want that to come out on the stand. So the whole time, all he's thinking about is covering his ass and not having. And so he's not. And so he tripped up and then the defense was able to make it look like he was lying. Yep. But really, you know, and so just man, manipulation, emotion. And no, nobody said I saw him do it. Right. But meantime, everybody knew he did it. So. Right. And they never pursued anyone else after the acquittal. No, he had actually, and he even submitted a guilty plea, mm -hmm. which we weren't told about. And I, I had a good friend of mine who was a JAG officer who knew my husband, who had deployed with him. He had met him, you know, training up and deployed. And he had been trying to say to me, Barb, this is a circumstantial case. I see some things going on that I don't like in this. Have you guys thought about a plea deal? And at the time I was like, no, this, he needs to die. You know, he needs to die. Death penalty, right? Yeah. And that's another thing that clouds judgment um, is when you throw the death penalty into the loop. But it turns out. And so he went to the defense. He went to prosecution that very weekend. It was an April weekend. And he said, hey, has there been any talk about a plea? Prosecution looked at him and said, no. But that very weekend coincidentally, the defense attorneys had submitted a plea deal. He right. pled guilty, which in the military, a defense attorney is not allowed to submit a guilty plea unless they believe that the evidence is overwhelming and there is a very strong likelihood that their client will be convicted. Right. And so they submitted the guilty plea, understanding that they signed it. Martinez mm -hmm. signed it, offered to plead guilty to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Mm -hmm. which he would very unlikely be granted. We would have shown up ever, you know, over. And over. Right. So that was rejected, but not just rejected. They were instructed not to tell the families about it. So the very weekend that we asked about it, they lied to us about it and said no, but they had it in their hands, like in their offices right? and lied to us. And so I didn't find out about that until after the acquittal. Right. I was given a copy because mm -hmm. I stayed on this and I took it to the military and I knew this one guy had it in his briefcase next to him. As I'm sitting there looking at him, I knew for a fact he had it in his briefcase. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. Went, oh, you know. Right. And then uh, the New York Times came out with the article. Yeah. I wonder where they got the plea. From. <laughs> I wonder how they got their hands on that. So uh, that, that was interesting. Yeah. And I did hear that there was uproar and outrage and heads are going to roll for this, but nothing happened. You know, there was no change. There was no other cases continued to happen. Right. It was like nothing came of it. Right. Right. And I mean, when I think about it as a legal professional, I'm like, well, I don't, you know, wait, and, and, you, and I know hindsight is 2020, right? After the acquittal, you're like, we should have taken the plea deal. But the plea deal, you know, he wasn't even he was agreeing to plead guilty to second degree murder. He said it was not premeditated, which is kind of bizarre, right? I'm like, well, this murder was premeditated because someone right. had to have put that there. They have to have pushed the button. So it, I think it would have been maybe a little bit difficult to get him to plead guilty, although, you know, it's possible. Um, but either way, I think the convert it could have opened conversations instead of a strict like just deny it. maybe 
hey, how about you plead guilty to this with life without possibility of parole, which is still better than death, right? Considering the Akbar case had just happened. So right. it was more fresh in people's minds. But right. No, that's it. I can't imagine how infuriating that is, especially when you're saying they're lying straight to your face. Yeah. Which is like, and what? so when I get into this is when people are like, oh, conspiracy, or you hate the military, oh, you hate this. I'm like, no, that's actually really not the case. Right. The case is I love and respect the people who serve honorably. I want them to be protected mm-hmm. from this. And I want families to be treated. I attended another court martial after I spent three months in Georgia attending somebody else's court martial, meeting the families. It was a completely different trial completely wow. different. Everything was professional, respectful, done exactly how it should be. There was a conviction, but the families were treated differently. The The trial judge treated it with more respect than this trial judge did. So everything is so arbitrary. And so the justice system is so subjective to mm-hmm. whomever is in power over that particular case. Right. And that's what, and I think that's across the board, military Everywhere. and civilian. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, and then it's funny because people always say, oh, lawyers, their number one answer is it depends. And, you know, it is. It does depend. It really depends. Like people will ask, oh, I'm doing that. I'm I'm going through a divorce. And what do you think the judge is going to do? I don't know, because it really just freaking depends. If the judge likes you that day, if the judge is feeling okay, if the judge shows up pissed off, you're screwed. You know what I mean? And it's just it's just kind of They're human beings. You're placing your hands and you're putting a lot of power and responsibility in the hands of human beings. So we're an imperfect species. Yeah. Everything we do is imperfect. It's imperfect. Mm-hmm. When you and I spoke a few months ago, uh, you, you talked to me about, and you mentioned this in your book, actually, also that when a tragedy like this happens, there is, and I think I'm quoting here, an insatiable need to uncover every morsel of information available. So outside of just your husband's case, and you just touched on this, but there's, I know there's, I know that you've done a lot more digging or you've done a lot more training and everything. What did you do to educate yourself on the justice system and more specifically the military justice system? So you you just talked about a court martial, right? So tell me more about that. Yeah, Uh, I knew that based on how I was being perceived at the time, I knew that wasn't going to get better. So I knew when I was writing my book, I wanted to do it from a place of credibility, not just pain. Mm -hmm. So I went after and got my master's in criminal justice from American military university. So I would have that master's degree Mm -hmm. behind me as a little badge of credibility. And so I would understand, maybe I would learn more about the justice system and I would be forced to think more and open my mind. And then I started doing my, I wrote my thesis. So I had to do a lot of research on cases and I went and I attended three months of a court martial capital court martial So I could see how another case was carried out. And I spent some time with the government expert and picked his brain over many, many days of conversations. And I learned and I educated myself the best I could. I spoke to other families because I didn't want to just come from my experience. I wanted to know for sure. And it turned out that most of those cases are carried out well and fine. And the judicial Uh, system works. Okay. In those cases, I mean, there's still a lot of bullshit that goes on behind the scenes and all that, but most of the cases are carried out in a much more professional, competent, fair way than ours was. We just got screwed. We just got screwed. Our case was the OJ case. Our case in the military was the OJ case um, where everybody knows it, it was wrong. Right. But. 
too bad. Right. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned something I, I, and I, as I was going back, trying to reread it, I was like, okay, I was like, she doesn't mention much about this, but there's a few things that you touch on in the book. You, you mentioned something about potential black market dealings that were going on with supply. Was this speculation on your part or did you ever get concrete information about potential dealings like that? So at the very beginning, at our very first meeting, they told us that Martinez was involved in a black market ring and this was being investigated as part of the, because you know, my husband went to oversee supply because items were missing from supply. Thousands of dollars of items are missing from supply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were told that there was a black market ring that he was involved in and this was going to be a part of the case. He said, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's see what covers. That was almost immediately reversed. And they said, no, we never said that. I'm like, well, yes, you did. Cause here's my notes from that meeting. And like, I wrote down mm-hmm. <laughs> what you said and you said it. Uh, so they just took a different track. But Martinez is also quoted as saying when he was arrested and when he was in one of his interviews, he said, if I go down, every, a lot of people go down with me. Right. And I think there you have it. I think there you have the. And is this something I can prove? No. What mm-hmm. they eventually came out and admitted was that he was selling old copiers and printers and broken stuff mm-hmm. like a truck or something to an Iraqi who then sold them on the black market. So he was stealing from supply, but they they only admitted to broken down equipment and all that. But in the beginning, they did say this one thing to us. There is CID uh, documentation of Martina saying, if I go down, a lot of people go down with me. Right. And then the trial and then the tone of the trial changed. And the judge recused himself. The new judge appointed himself. Rulings were made, evidence was thrown out, jurors were sat. So, I mean, you deduct what you want from that. Mm-hmm. And the and the, the jury never got to hear anything that Martinez said outside of the comments about fragging um, people uh, because okay. his statement to CID was thrown out. Yes. Right. Okay. There's something in the the book that kind of made me giggle and cringe, if that's a thing. But you talk about a trial survival kit, survival kit that your sisters <laughs> made for you. Yeah. So tell me more about this survival kit. And is that something that was good for you, that helped you, that encouraged you? Or should should people do this for other folks who maybe are going through that? Or just tell me more about that. Because I I was like, holy smokes, I have never heard of that. But it just kind of made me <laughs> it made me feel all types of different ways on inside. Yeah, you know what? That really was great. Um it was the post-it notes with encouraging messages. It was some candy. It was some wine. It was some silly toys like inflatable bat and we would like smack each other with it because <laughs> you know I had to get it off. So it was just it was just packed with those things that I could pull out when I needed it and either get some encouragement or get a laugh or get that sugar rush, that snack with chocolate, have a glass of wine, like whatever it was I needed at that moment. There was really pretty much something in that, but tissues, all that stuff, <laughs> uh, some kind of obnoxious stuff. But I actually, now that you say it, I actually would recommend that you know somebody going through the judicial system from the victim side, from the survivor side. Mm -hmm. I mean, absolutely. And I would include, I mean, there's like a list of things that I would include, but then you could personalize it to that person as well. Something, you know, that they find 
comfort in or joy in or you know, pictures from home, whatever that might be. Right. Um, but yeah, I would actually recommend that because for me having that to come back to and open up at the end of a day or at the beginning of a day when I needed to really just it did great things for me. It just help. it's like, you know, one more minute of right. strength, one more minute of strength coming through you. And that one minute is the difference between you getting to the next minute or not. So, right. yeah. Wow. I'm glad I asked. Cause at first I was like, this is such a silly question. I was like, but I really got to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, um, talk to me about the, uh, the purple heart and the struggles that you've had with attempting to get the purple heart criteria changed. Yeah. So my husband's death certificate reads non-hostile because being killed in a combat zone with a claymore mine that reads front toward enemy does not qualify as a hostile death, according to the United States military. Mm-hmm. Being killed by somebody that there's no killer on the dotted line for, they, you know, they don't have anybody's name on a piece of paper that says this person killed them. So the military on the one hand is saying no murder doesn't count as a hostile death. And on the other hand, they're saying it wasn't an American soldier who killed him. So, but they refuse to admit it was, you know, which, which is it right. Um, and plus this was part of my argument as well. I truly believe nothing will change my mind on this, that an American soldier who willfully inflicts catastrophic harm or death upon another United States military member while in a combat zone has aided and abetted the enemy and is therefore an enemy Mm -hmm. clear as day. In our case, the murder weapon literally read front toward enemy. (laughs) How much clearer can you be that this is an enemy that detonated the bomb that killed my husband and captain Esposito, but the military doesn't want to see that and refuses to give him the purple heart. And for me, it's not even so much about the medal. Sure. There's the national purple heart hall of honor, the country's, the country's purple heart hall of honors, 30 minutes from my house. And my husband isn't in it and that's wrong, but you know, there's the whole opening to, well, if we use this case as precedent, then we can teach other people. Cause if any of the hundreds of people who Martinez had threatened to kill the commanding officer in front of had been trained to say, you know, this is more than blowing off steam or if there had been policy that this is not acceptable, you will never, never, ever threaten the life of another. And I know, right. I know it's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'll kill this guy. I'll kill you. You know, especially military, you're out there, you're talking tough, you're in this whole thing, but should that be allowed? Shouldn't Mm -hmm. it at least be a conversation to look into whether that should be allowed? Should there not be studies done? Should there not be some kind of panel drawn up? Should there be a conversation over whether it is permissible to threaten the life of another soldier, especially an officer in the combat zone? Should that not be a conversation in the United States military? What we're told to know is it's not even worth a conversation and it's definitely not worth a conversation from you. Now go away. Wow. (laughs) And so that's very frustrating. We've been trying for years to get this done. The latest effort was last year. It looked like we were going to have some good progress made, but then President Trump had a few other things on his mind Mm -hmm. besides, you know, dealing with this. And now it's before Biden. Uh, It was delivered to Biden from a 
very well-known congressman who has his own sphere of influence and is on our side. And so this congressman has picked up that torch on our behalf and we'll see. So you guys have not given up. I mean, when an opportunity presents itself, I'll take it, but I can't live in that space anymore where it's all I do. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. In your book, you wrote, quote, our soldiers need to be trained to recognize threats, which is just what you just said before them, even when originating from an unconventional enemy, our own soldiers, our military needs to acknowledge what went wrong and make steps to remedy the weaknesses that contributed to this travesty, end quote. So this, as I mentioned earlier, is exactly what I preach on my podcast, training or helping military members recognize that threats exist among our ranks. Looking back now, do you think that with high profile cases like the Fort Hood massacre and the Vanessa Guillen case, do you think that people are starting to get the picture or to actually get the message at least? No, because <laughs> I mean, maybe they would have if there hadn't been so much else. You know, we have, we don't have a very big attention span mm -hmm. as people and as a nation. And when's the last time you heard anything about the Vanessa Guillen case or Fort Hood? Who's even thinking about it anymore? No, nobody's thinking about it anymore. And unless people are thinking about it and talking about it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. And you know, there's only about maybe five to eight topics that the media covers at all. It's like going to the movies is the same movie made over and over with just different characters and, you know, a couple of different plot twists. This is only the same five, eight, 10 topics that we're talking about in the media at any given time. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got, you know, we got COVID, we got all this stuff. Who cares about this stuff? Unless it's in front of you, out of sight, out of mind, you know, and unless it directly impacts you, are you really going to care? I don't know. And I'm not in the ranks of the military to know about it, but the people that I do meet, if I talk about these cases, they're like, what? You know, so. If, yeah, they're almost like if, incredulous. Like they're like, that if doesn't it's, happen in the military. Yeah. If it's not something you've come into contact with, then no. Then people, yeah, don't really, yeah. don't really realize. Yeah. All right. So I want to wrap it up and I want you to tell my listeners where they can find you, tell them more about where they can find your book, your new book. When is it coming out? All that jazz. Yeah. Um, everything I do is on americansnippets.com mm -hmm. and you can find it all there. We have a live event coming up. We do regular live broadcasts. We interview people and my first two books are, are on there and this book will be on there. It's coming out this summer. I'm really mm -hmm. excited. Hmm? What's the name of it? It is what not to wear to a murder trial and other tips tragedy taught me. And <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, that was one of the lessons I learned, you know, and that's about, it's more about there is one, one chapter of the book is dedicated to a segment of that chapter is dedicated to being in the criminal justice system as a survivor or a victim. Right. 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 Awesome. Yeah. So is it coming out in the beginning of June, end of June, or actually it's scheduled for July 22nd. Okay. So July. Yeah. So we'll be doing a lot of build up here in the next couple of months about it. I'm waiting for my forward. I don't want to say who that's from yet, but it's somebody everybody will know in this community, but till I actually get it in, we'll Yay. see. Excited. We'll see. I'm yeah. excited. So before, before I do let you go, I did want everyone to know where they could find you, but 
is there anything else that you want to say about your husband's case, about the military justice, about anything really? I mean, I'm here for you. Is there anything else you want to share? I mean, no, given your audience and who listens to you, I would imagine that there's other people that have been engaged in the military criminal justice system in some way, shape or form. If you're in the military, you're probably more prepared for the fact that it's about procedure over a person. If you're not in the military, this may come as a shock to you and it may be really difficult to deal with. So I would encourage you to reach out and find some level of support and don't uh, be intimidated by it. Certainly be respectful. I'm not saying not to be respectful of, of the people in the system because most of the people are good and really want to do the right thing. And they're also beholden to the system. So mm-hmm. they're doing the best that they can. Uh, but take a few deep breaths and really try to get some perspective before you get in there and involved. And if you are in the military and you're part of the criminal justice system because you've been victimized and God bless you for having the strength and the courage to come forward. Really. Right. Because that's, I think that's the biggest battle, right. Is coming forward and actually saying something to someone and then fighting until something is actually done. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, so much, Barb, for taking the time to meet with me. I truly appreciate it. This, your story has been in the works for a long time. It's just, uh, I wasn't quite sure I was ready to tell it. And now I'm, I'm, I'm excited that I have this opportunity and I'm more excited that I got firsthand knowledge from you who literally sat through the entire trial. And to me, it's such a, I think it's amazing that you not only endured this tragedy, but you went on because you wanted to continue to learn. So the getting the master's degree and then sharing your thesis with me that you wrote about military, about military crimes. And then actually sitting through a three-month trial, a capital capital trial, which, well, you sat through two, right? Um, but that's not very, I'm not even sure when the last time we sought the death penalty in a military case was. Um, so to have sat through two, I, I think if anybody needs, has questions, they need to come to you. <laughs> uh, because I would say that you're kind of like the in-house, um, in-house expert for that. So thank you so much, Barb. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I want to end this episode with a quote from Barb Allen's book, quote, unconventional enemies in our own military, either dangerous before they enlist or becoming dangerous after enlistment are a threat to every soldier. It is inevitable that some of these individuals will slip in unnoticed or overlooked, but they do not have to be permitted to escalate unchecked. Recognizing this threat and acting upon it can and will prevent future murders within the military. There is no shame in acknowledging the presence of these individuals. The only shame is in denying they exist, and it is a fatal mistake to do so, end quote. Wow, True Crime Warriors, I know that you are out there fighting the good fight every day, remaining vigilant, keeping your eyes peeled, and hopefully reporting anything that makes you uncomfortable. I want to thank Barb for coming on the show today and for sharing her incredible story. I highly recommend Barb's book, Front Toward Enemy. It is one of the best true crime books I've read. It's a true page turner, but make sure you have your tissues ready because it is not for the faint of heart. 
I had the pleasure of reading a few pages of Barb's new book titled, What Not to Wear to a Murder Trial. And it is much more lighthearted. I think everyone's gonna really enjoy it. I plan on buying it as soon as it is released and I encourage you all to do the same. That's it for today, y'all. If we have any new listeners today, I hope you'll stick around. Click subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts because there are plenty of binge-worthy episodes in the Military Murder Catalog and there are many more to come. For more Mama Margot throughout the week, make sure you follow me on social media, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, or you can join my Facebook community at Military True Crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. The music was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.